Welcome back to Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries Unity in Christ program. If this is your first time listening, my name is Christine Kim and I'm the host of this program. Today I would like to share this time to speak about Jonah. I personally like the book of Jonah. And I think the reason is because reading about Jonah reminds me of myself. He was very stubborn, and you can see how he complains to God. And so today I would like to share about Jonah, and maybe even share about the book of Jonah in a different perspective than what you may have heard before. I'm pretty sure many of our listeners already know what the book of Jonah may be about, but I would like for us to focus on the God. That guides this man throughout the adventures of his life. We'll come back to share more after our first song.
The first chapter of Jonah begins with the Lord commanding Jonah to go to the city of Nineveh. As the people of the city were becoming more wicked, God wanted Jonah to go and tell the people that his judgment was coming soon. Jonah knew exactly why God was asking him to do this. God wanted the people of the city to repent of their wickedness and wanted to give them another chance to turn around from their evil ways. But Jonah was very displeased about what he was commanded to do by God. Nineveh was a city that was hated by the people of Israel. And because of this very reason, Jonah did not like the fact that these people would be forgiven by God and would be saved. And therefore, instead of going there to obey to God's commands, he goes in the opposite direction to get away from the Lord. He finds a ship and leaves for the town of Tarshish and goes down underneath the ship as it sails off and falls asleep. However, what does God do to Jonah? As Jonah tries to avoid God and goes in the opposite direction, God does not just leave Jonah alone. He allows for Jonah to realize the sin of disobedience he has committed. As Jonah is thrown into the sea, God prepares for a great fish to swallow him. As Jonah stays inside the fish for three days and three nights, in chapter 2 you can see where Jonah begins to repent. He faces a very dangerous situation in which his life was almost at stake and he experiences God's great grace of saving him. Experiencing all of this, don't you think he should be changed into a great prophet that wholeheartedly obeys the every command of the Lord? But if you continue on reading chapters 4 and 5, Jonah continues to disappoint us. Jonah repents before the Lord and is given another chance. God tells Jonah, as he did before, to go to the city of Nineveh to deliver the message he gave them before. This time Jonah obeys the Lord's commands and goes to the city, and as he enters it, he shouts, Forty days from now, Nineveh will be destroyed. But it doesn't seem like Jonah does this out of obedience in hoping that the people truly repent. This was a city so large that it took three days to see it all, but Jonah takes only one day to travel the whole city. But unexpectedly, the people in Nineveh believed in God's message that Jonah proclaimed and began to repent. Even the king heard what Jonah said and stepped down from his throne took off his royal robe, and repented throughout the whole city. But do you think Jonah found happiness in seeing these people repent? No. He actually became very angry and complains to the Lord. It says in chapter 4, verse 1 through 2, But it greatly displeased Jonah, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord and said, Please, Lord, was not this what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. Jonah was so angry at how much these people oppress his people and gets angry at the Lord's mercy upon them. He asked the Lord to please take his life from him, as death is better than life. 
he completely forgets about how God rescued him from the great fish and starts to complain back to him. If I was God, I don't even know what I might have done to Jonah for acting this way. What would all of our listeners have done? Soften my heart and break.
Up next, we introduce you to our new speaker, Pastor Timothy Keller of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City, New York. Today's topic is spiritual warfare, part one, based on Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 13. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Timothy Keller. Scripture reading is taken from Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 13. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything, to stand. This is the word of the Lord. So, the devil. We're in Ephesians, and we're getting to this week and next week a passage on spiritual warfare. Now, in Africa, Latin America, Asia, most places in the world, the idea of spiritual warfare, of a conflict between spiritual good and spiritual evil, is not an unusual concept. Many people in many parts of the world think it really helps them make sense of reality. But we here in the Western world find it a foreign concept. So let's look at this passage. This is the first part. And let us notice what? We struggle, you know, spiritual warfare. But let's notice who we fight, what we fight, and how we fight. Who we fight? Our struggle is not with flesh and blood, but with spiritual forces of evil. What we fight? The devil's schemes. How we fight, do everything. All right, first, um, who do we fight? Yeah, you see here in verse 12, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, authorities, powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil. Now, when Paul says this, and he says, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, he doesn't mean that uh, we don't wrestle with any flesh and blood version of evil. He's not saying that. I mean, he's not saying that, that evil doesn't take flesh and blood form. He, uh, he, he has struggled with people who imprisoned him and who flogged him and who, uh, you know, stoned him. So he certainly uh, opposed flesh and blood evil. But what he is saying is we wrestle not only with flesh and blood evil that is more than merely human and natural, that the flesh and blood behind it is something that's not flesh and blood. And until you recognize that dimension of evil in the world, you will not be able to understand its depth and its pervasiveness and its intractability. So 
That's what he's saying. Now, here in the West, modern Western world, we have trouble with that. Because the modern Western mindset is this, that everything has a natural cause. And therefore, everything has a scientific explanation. And if everything has a natural cause and a scientific explanation, then crime and violence and greed and racism and war and cruelty, all those things must have a natural cause. And what is that natural cause then? We say it's bad psychological factors, you were raised right, you weren't educated right, or bad sociological factors, you know, bad social systems. And we say... There's got to be a natural cause to all this, and we can figure it out, and we can fix it. That's the Western mindset. But it's wearing thin. Uh, Del, Andrew Del Banco, who's one of the, a, a great uh, uh, intellectual scholar type who's at Columbia University, some years ago wrote a book called The Death of Satan. And even though he says in the book, I'm a secular liberal, okay, he wrote a book called The Death of Satan, and the first line in the book is this. He says, a gulf has opened in our culture between the visibility of evil and the intellectual resources to cope with it. And then he goes on and says this, that we've jettisoned in the West the idea of cosmic evil or transcendent evil or supernatural evil. We don't believe in that. In fact, we don't even like to use the word evil. And the reason we don't like it is because it implies value judgments and moral absolutes. So we use medical terms. We talk about dysfunction. We talk about pathology. And we don't use moral terminology. But, Del Banco says, as the 20th century has gone on, it's gotten harder and harder to say that holocausts and ethnic cleansing and serial killing is just bad psychological and sociological adjustment. Del Banco turns, in his book, he turns to a very famous interaction It's in the book, Silence of the Lambs. And of course, it was also depicted in the movie, The Silence of the Lambs. It's the place where the young policewoman, Officer Starling, goes to meet for the first time the monstrous serial killer Hannibal Lecter. And she goes to the cell. And she's looking at him and hearing what he's done and says, what happened to him to make him so twisted? What happened to him that he could be so cruel? (laughs) He heard her. Big mistake, Starling. And he begins to speak. And this is what he says. And it's very hard to read this without hearing Anthony Hopkins, I know. But, you know, she says, what happened to him to make him so twisted? And Lecter responds, quote, nothing happened to me, Officer Starling. I happened. You can't reduce me to a set of influences. You've given up good and evil for behaviorism, Officer Starling. You've got everyone in moral dignity pants. Nothing is ever anybody's fault. Look at me. Can you stand to say, I'm evil? And Del Banco, who's quoting this, says, modern people, the modern West, cannot answer the monster's question. And he's right. He says, as the 20th century has gone on, what we said 100, 150 years ago, that all evil has got natural causes, scientific causes, psychological, social causes. He says, it's wearing thin. You know, one of the things we used to say is that uh, racism and violence comes from a lack of education, a lack of civilization, a lack of culture. It's only primitive, uncivilized, uneducated people are like that. And then we had World War II. And then we had the final solution and the Holocaust and the death camps that arose out of perhaps as, as educated and as cultured a nation as there was on the face of the earth. And we had Marxism. And Marxism says, ah, the reason for all the problem, it's not psychological or educational, it's social. We have to put the means of production in the hands of the proletariat, not in the hands of the capitalists, but we did, they did. And of course, the proletariat was every bit as oppressive and violent as the capitalists were. 
And now Marxism has been thrown onto the dustbin of history, basically. And over and over again, everything that says, oh, it's psychological, it's social. Del Banco says, we cannot today in the West account for the depth and pervasiveness of evil. But the Bible doesn't have that problem. The Bible says, here's where evil came from. It came from the free will of two races of beings that God created, angels and humans. And some of the angels fell by exercising their free will and turning, turning again, away from God. And the fallen angels, the devil and his demons, are personal supernatural beings. And then on the other hand, we have the human race, and we turned, and now sin and evil is in our heart. It's deep in our soul, which is still spiritual roots. And therefore, here's what Christianity says. Yes, psychological and sociological factors can aggravate They can accentuate and they can shape the innate self-centeredness, the innate self-absorption, the innate blindness and self-delusion, the innate radical insecurity in the human heart. But those factors don't create it. And that, that stuff that's in the heart, aggravated by the devil, is what makes the world the way it is. So that's enough on that. Point one, we wrestle not only with flesh and blood, So let me just uh, push this home to you. There is a devil, there are demons. You need to see that. Uh, I know there's got to be people that have a lot of trouble with the idea that there's a personal devil or believing in a personal devil, believing here what the Bible says. But let me actually, let me suggest four things to you real quick. Number one, if you struggle believing the devil, would you please at least consider that you're being simplistic? New Yorkers want to be nuanced and sophisticated, not crude and unsophisticated. But is it possible that perhaps by not realizing the multidimensionality and the spiritual depth dimension to human evil, you are being simplistic and you are being naive? And not the people who believe in the demons, that they're not being the unsophisticated crude ones, but you are? Here's a second point. If you struggle with believing in the personal devil, consider that you might might be culturally narrow. Because, you know... White Western people have a lot of trouble believing the devil. That's not true of most people in the world. Africa, Latin America, Asia, they have no trouble believing in spirits and demons and things like that. And, and they've got wisdom too, don't they? I mean, are you really going to just look down at all that wisdom? Why not be open culturally to what other cultures tell you about this? To paraphrase Shakespeare, there are more things in heaven and earth than are dreamt of in your psychologies and sociologies. Here's a third idea. Do you believe in God? You say, oh, yeah, I believe in God. Well, if you believe in God, isn't it a little inconsistent if you believe in good personal supernatural beings, why there couldn't be bad personal supernatural beings? I mean, isn't that a little inconsistent? But here's the main thing I want to say. If the Bible's true, if the Bible's right about this, and it is, then you will not be able to understand, let alone defeat, on your own, the darkness in your own heart, in your family, in the city, in the world. You won't be able to do that. The dark is, it's beyond you. We're in over our heads unless God is helping us. It's not going to just take psychology and sociology. Okay, that's who we fight. Secondly, what is it we fight? And what we fight, it's, it's actually listed there, the devil's schemes. And, all right, let's, let's spend some time on this. The word scheme, sometimes it's called wiles. It's a word that means, it's, the Greek word is methodia method, but it's a word that means strategies. 
The devil, therefore, must have an arsenal of weapons, or the devil must have a, a portfolio of various strategies he throws at us. Very interesting. There's a place in 2 Corinthians 2, verse 11, that says, uh, do not be unaware of the devil's uh, devices. We should Do not be ignorant of his devices, the old King James says. So what is that? Obviously, the devil's got devices. We have to fight them. What is that? There's two errors we must fight and two sets of strategies we must fight. Two errors that he got, the devil wants us to fall into and two sets of strategies that he throws. Okay, first the two errors. Now, the two errors are actually inferred. You can infer them from the balance of what Paul is saying to us about the demons and the devil. On the one hand, he doesn't want us to overestimate. On the other hand, he doesn't want us to underestimate their power. So, for example, he doesn't want us to underestimate the power. You know, it says our struggle is not with flesh and blood. The word struggle there is not the normal word for struggle. It's a word that actually means wrestling with your bare hands on the ground. You know, if you're shooting arrows at somebody, that's a battle. And if you're fighting them with a sword, that's a battle. But when you get to the place where you're on the ground wrestling with your enemy with your bare hands, that's the most desperate life and death close moment. And that's the word Paul deliberately chooses to talk about the spiritual warfare. And then look at, look at the words he uses. Why doesn't he just say demons? Instead he says the rulers, the authorities, powers of this dark world, spiritual forces of evil. He's trying to show us how formidable they are. He's just racking up these impressive words. He's trying to show us, do not underestimate them. But, on the other hand, he actually says, don't overestimate them. Be strong in the Lord. Meaning, you know, don't be afraid. Don't run. Don't be cowardly. And then he says at the end, he says, for when the evil day comes and you've put on the full armor of God and you've done everything I'm telling you to do, you will stand. He doesn't say you might stand. He says you will stand. Expect success. Now, uh, C.S. Lewis in, in the introduction to his book, Screwtape Letters, says there are two equal and opposite errors you can fall into with regard to demons and the demonic. And what are those two opposite errors? They're the ones that Paul's trying to help us avoid. On the one hand, you can overestimate their strength. You can have what C.S. Lewis calls an unhealthy interest in them or ascribe all evil to them or ascribe too much power to them. On the other hand, to disbelieve in them, to not believe in them at all. One you could call superstition. One you could call substition. One is overbelief, one is underbelief. And Lewis ends his little quote by saying, they themselves, the devils, are equally pleased with both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. Now, why are both these errors bad? I'll tell you why. Because they reduce evil. And the key to fighting successfully all the things that are against us, all the spiritual forces, is to actually have a nuanced and complexified understanding of evil. And if you say, oh, everything's the devil or there's nothing the devil, you're actually, you've reduced things and you really are, uh, you've got a simplistic understanding of what goes wrong. I often refer to this, well, I don't know how often. If you've been around, you've heard me refer to it before. But some years ago, I read a, a sermon by Richard Baxter, who was a 17th century British Puritan minister. Uh, you know, 1600s. And he wrote a book on melancholy, which of course is our word, is, is an old word for depression. And he was a very good pastor and he knew how to work with people. And so the sermon says, well, what are the possible causes of depression, melancholy? And he named four. The first one he says, well, it could be your depression is caused by the physical 
It might have a physical cause, in which case what you need is medicine or food or rest to be something with your body. Secondly, he says, there might be a psychological cause. You might be cast down in your temperament, and what you need then is lots of love and affirmation and just support. But number three, he says, there might be a moral cause. Uh, You might feel guilty about something, or you might be angry at something and maybe feel guilty about being that angry, and you need repentance, and you need forgiveness, and you need reconciliation. So it could be a physical cause. There could be a psychological cause. There could be a moral cause. Or he says there could be a demonic cause, which we're getting to here. Or it could be more than one, and they could be kind of interactive. Now, I challenge you to find anywhere, hardly, that level of nuance and balance. Because, you see, almost everybody falls into one of the two errors that C.S. Lewis talks about, one of the two errors that, that Paul's trying to avoid. On the one hand, let's face it, you have a lot of Christians today who actually attribute so much to the devil. If you've got a problem, if you've got a temper problem, if you've got an anger problem, for example, it's the devil. We've got to do something about it. Well, wait a minute, what about the way you were raised? What about the bad psychology in you because of a, a, a bad family background? What about your physiology? What about is there something wrong with your chemis- chemical? No, no, it's all the devil. See, so what you're doing, is, or, or, or maybe you're angry because you're refusing to forgive somebody, and that's a moral issue and not a demonic issue. See, on the one hand, you've got, you've got believers, you've got Christians that are attributing too much. They're like, actually, weirdly enough, they would be upset to hear that, but they're like magicians, according to, to, to Lewis. In other words, they're, they're, everything is magical, everything is occult, everything is demonic. On the other hand, you've got what we have mainly in New York, and that is we don't believe in it at all. We give up on the whole thing. It's, the whole idea is kind of silly. Both, both errors equally please the devils. They hail both with equal delight. Why? Because you're really not able to see all that they're throwing at you, all that life is throwing at you. Most people, if you're discouraged, depressed, there's a super spiritual approach. It's all the devil. There's, a, there's an under spiritual approach. It's, you know, it's, you just give a person medicine. It's, you know, it's a psychological and the physical. It's never the moral or the demonic. Oh, my goodness. But Richard Baxter was biblical. Paul is being biblical. Are you being conformed to one of these errors? Stay out of them. It's, it's part of the method. It's, it's part of his devices. Stay out of those two errors. But now secondly, understand the two categories of lies. The devil, do you know the word devil here? Uh, put on the full armor of God so you can take your stand against the devil's scheme. There's two words usually used to, just to talk about the devil. This is probably the most common one. It's the Greek word diabolos. And you say, oh yeah, I know that word, diabolical. But maybe you don't, because the word diabolos is a verb, and it's a noun form of a verb, and the verb means to lie and slander. Now, you need to understand this. You need to get away from the error. We're too skeptical. That is, here in the West, we don't think the devil's ever involved unless the person's head is completely turning around, they're turning green, and they're vomiting. So then, well, maybe that is the devil. You know, perhaps. Because the devil got in there somehow. The main way the devil works is he's a liar. The word devil means a liar. It also means a slanderer. John White wrote a book years ago, Christian counselor, and said, here's how the devil works. Take a a piano and open up the top and sing a note into it. And whatever string your voice is attuned to, 
You know, most of us don't have perfect pitch, so we have no idea what note we're actually singing. But you can find out. Open up the top of the piano, sing a note in, and a particular note will, uh, a string will vibrate. It's the string that's attuned to your voice. You haven't even touched it. You haven't touched the key, you haven't touched it, and yet it's vibrating to your voice. That's what the devil does. The devil cannot make a good person bad. The devil makes a flawed person worse. The devil plays on what's already in you. He aggravates what's already in you through lies. And that's the reason why, for example, it says in Ephesians 4, we actually saw it some weeks ago, don't let the sun go down on your anger. Don't give the devil that kind of foothold.
are listening to Unity in Christ, the English hour in our broadcast program. Here at Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries, we strive to connect our listeners to engage with a community of believers as one body under Christ. Since 2000, we have dedicated our lives to make disciples of all nations through radio broadcasting. We are always encouraged to hear from you, so if you have any comments or testimonies that you would like to share, please feel free to email us at askhsgm at gmail.com. Also, don't forget to subscribe to Heart and Soul Podcasts on iTunes for weekly sermons. To learn more, visit heartandsoul.org. There are people who gave up their lives in honor of Christ who gave us our everlasting life. Continued is a story of the many people who endured their life with faith, titled The Voice of the Martyrs. Hello everyone, this is Brian Winston of The Voice of the Martyrs. Family is the most basic unit of community that God gave us. The saying, blood is thicker than water, reminds us the relationship within a family is closer than any other relationship because a family is related by blood. But our Lord God, Jesus Christ, who established the relationship of family, tells us something that we cannot easily understand in Matthew chapter 10. Do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father, and a daughter against his mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be the members of his household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me, and he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. These are the words spoken in Matthew 10, verses 34 through 38. How is it that our loving God, Jesus Christ, came to give us a sword for fighting instead of bringing peace? How can a family, which should be living in harmony, become enemies with one another? But such things are possible in the spiritual world. When we decide to follow Jesus, we are put in discord with the world, which is under the power of sin and we become enemies with the people of the world, and a new family relationship is formed. Matthew chapter 12, verses 48 through 50 states, But Jesus answered the one who was telling him and said, Who is my mother, and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand towards his disciples, he said, Behold my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of my Father who is in heaven He is my brother and sister and mother. Fortunately, in countries like the United States or South Korea, where Christianity is widespread and well-known, there aren't many stories of people becoming enemies with their family because they started following Jesus. Of course, there are stories of conflict among family members, but not at the level of family members having become life-threatening enemies. However, on the other side of the earth, the decision to believe and follow Jesus is a much more serious thing, synonymous to becoming enemies 
with one's family, to being abandoned by them, and even killed by them. Today we will listen to the story of our sister in Christ, Sarah Fatima of Saudi Arabia, who was killed by her family because of her faith in Jesus Christ. My name is Sarah Fatima. I was born in Saudi Arabia into a nomadic Bedouin family, and I grew up as a Muslim since I was a child. I wanted to know deeply about our God Allah since I was young, and I desired to live for Allah. Such passion was what led my mom to allow me to attend a Quran school to learn more about the Quran, despite the fact that I am a woman. I always hid my body with a black traditional hijab. I practiced fasting Mondays and Thursdays according to the law of the Quran, and I practiced abstinence by not watching TV and not listening to any worldly music. I truly wanted to live as the Quran taught. Perhaps because of my way of life, I didn't have any friends around me. Looking at me, who wanted to live only for Allah, my mother started to regret sending me to a Quran school, and she transferred me to a regular public school. But strangely, I started hanging out with other students without any particular issues once I transferred, and I started living like an ordinary schoolgirl. One day, when I was 18 years old, having just started to study media at a university, I entered an essay contest regarding Islam. I started to research online, and by chance, I read an article by a traitor who converted to Christianity from Islam. I started having a conversation with him online, and he began to point out to me what was wrong with Muhammad's teachings. I became so angry at his actions. How dare he criticize the teachings of Muhammad? I cursed him and started searching for answers to the problems he pointed out to me because I wanted to make a cool comeback. But strangely, the more and more I researched, my faith in the teachings of Muhammad weakened. And finally, I started to believe there is no God. I had been feeling powerless for about a week because I realized that Allah and Muhammad, whom I believed until then, were fake. But then, in my heart, surfaced one name. That name was Jesus. There is a story of Jesus in the Quran, mentions of his death and resurrection. I started looking into this Jesus, and I also started praying to God. I cried out, if you are there, God, let me know the truth. Whether Christ is right or whether Muhammad is right, I started having a debate with many people on the internet. Then I came across the Bible. I could not stop tears from flowing out of my eyes once I started reading the Bible. Through the Bible, the Lord was speaking directly to my heart. I wept and confessed to the Lord, Lord, you were the Lord that I had been seeking since I was young. You are my Lord. After receiving Jesus as my Lord, I read the Gospel of Matthew four times and printed out the Sermon on the Mount to keep it in my purse wherever I went. Sending me His only begotten Son, forgiving my sins through Him, and giving me eternal life and salvation through Him. My God, my Father! 
I was always thankful with the joy of finding the truth. Then I wanted to be baptized. I wanted to die with the Lord and to rise up with the Lord. But receiving the baptism of Jesus in Saudi Arabia meant death. So with traveling as an excuse, I went on a trip to France to be baptized and came back. And I started living as a Christian in Saudi Arabia without being overt. But as a city set on a hill cannot be hidden, a Christian cannot live without being revealed. My siblings, who noticed the changes in my life, started to question me. And then today they finally read my diary after searching my computer. In my diary was my account of my journey of faith until meeting Jesus Christ. My father and brothers are demanding that I repent and turn back to Islam. But there is nothing I have to repent for. Right now I've locked my door and I am sending my friend an email. I think this email will be the last email that I send. In July 2008, Sarah Fatima disappeared from the internet after sending her Christian friend an email of her situation asking for prayers. A few days later, Sarah Fatima was tortured and killed by her own brother. She was only 26 years old at the time. As Jesus said, Sarah Fatima became enemies with her siblings and lost her life at the hands of her brothers. However, although she became enemies with her biological siblings sharing her parents' blood, she earned brothers and sisters of the Spirit who share the blood of Jesus Christ, and she entered into a peaceful relationship with God. At the end of Sarah Fatima's email to her friend, she quoted Psalms 27, verse 1. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the defense of my life. Whom shall I dread? Fatima, who realized that God is the sovereign Lord of her life, did not fear the world, and the world was not worthy of her. This was the voice of the martyrs.
share fiction Fountains open deep and wide Through the floodgates of God's mercy Flow a vast and gracious time Grace and love like mighty rivers Born in from above The heavens peace and perfect justice Kiss the guilty world in love Jonah goes out from the city and sits east of it. 
he makes a shelter for himself to sit underneath it to see what happens to the city of Nineveh. But during this time, God appoints a plan to grow and have it shade over Jonah to deliver him from discomfort. But the very next day, what does God prepare? He appoints a worm to attack the plant, and it soon withers. In addition to this, he appoints a scorching east wind and the sun to beat down on Jonah's head. With the scorching sun and winds beating against Jonah, he cries out to the Lord again and says, Death is better to me than life. To this, God said, You had compassion on the plant for which you did not work and which you did not cross to grow, which came up overnight and perished overnight. Should I not have compassion on Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between their right and left hand, as well as many animals? When reading the book of Jonah, a question comes to my mind. If God knew that Jonah was going to disobey his commands and not go to the city of Nineveh when he first asks, and even though he saves him from the great fish, knew that Jonah would forget that grace and complain against him, why did God choose Jonah to be the one to go to the city to tell the people? Was there not any other prophet to send during this time? I'm pretty sure there were others whom God could have chosen. Seeing and how Jonah disobeys God, I think about whether God may have wanted to give up on him. But as we read the book of Jonah, in order to mold this one person, to reveal God's heart to him, we can see all the works God has done to fulfill this. When he disobeyed, he allowed for a great storm upon the sea. And as he is thrown into the ocean and almost died, he prepared a great fish for him. And he also commands this fish to vomit Jonah back up onto dry land. But was this it? He also appoints a plant to grow and cast shade upon Jonah, as well as a worm to wither it up. We see God as He creates all of these circumstances to happen. Who was this all for? It was all for the one stubborn person, Jonah. Looking at the many events that happened in Jonah's life, I look back at my own. I look back and carefully meditate on all the works God has allowed to happen in my life. As God saves Jonah when he disobeys his commands, the grace that he was able to flourish, we are all flourishing as well. But even as we are receiving this great grace, and even have received a gift of eternal life, we still complain and disobey against God. I think there must have been numerous times He wanted to give up on us. But God never gave up on Jonah, and He patiently waits for Jonah to know His heart. But this very God leads our lives in the very same way. God will never give up and let go of His people. God wants us to know His heart. He wants us to know how much He wants to save the people of this world. God fulfilled His will even through someone like Jonah, and I truly believe that He is working through us even at this very moment for His will to be completed. I hope this next week we may lift up our lives to God so that He may take full control and lead us in the way that He desires. We will now wrap up Unity in Christ. Thank you for listening, as it has been my pleasure. I hope to see you this time again next week, and God bless. Higher than the mountains that I face Stronger than the power of the grave 
trial and the change This one thing remains This one thing remains Your love never fails and never gives up Never runs out on me